Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Beverly Sims. She is a sculptor whose work incorporates painting, drawing, film, photography, and performance. Beverly received her MFA in sculpture from the Yale School of Art, and she also studied art at the New York Studio School, the Boston Museum School, and at the Skelhagen School of Painture and Sculpting, where she now serves on the Governor's Board. She has had dozens of solo exhibitions at institutions such as MoMA PS1, ICA Philadelphia, the MCA Shop, the MCA Chicago, and the Horsehorn Museum and Sculptor Garden, to name just a few. In 2022, Beverly has had solo exhibitions at the Susan Inglet Gallery in New York, and her paintings and sculptures were recently on view in Witch Hunt at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. And her billboard announcing the Witch Hunt exhibition continues to loom over the historic corner of Hollywood and Sunset Boulevards. Also in 2022, she created Pool in collaboration with Jennifer Minetti and Emily Mast at Joan Exhibition Space in Los Angeles. Current exhibitions include inclusion in a group show at Canada Gallery curated by Cahill Robert Irving titled Summer Nights, which opened in July this year. Beverly recently participated in an exhibition titled Process, on view at the Alexander McQueen flagship location on Old Bond Street in London. For this presentation, 12 visual artists from around the world were invited to respond to the upcoming Alexander McQueen collection. Beverly Sims is represented by Susan Inglet Gallery in New York and Shoshana Wayne Gallery in Los Angeles. Enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome. Beverly, welcome to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you on this beautiful summer day. So share with us, when did you discover your artistic passion? You know, I I got interested in what I don't think I would have called art at the time, but um, my grandmother lived with us and um, sewed all her own clothes. She was very good with her hands. And um, she was a big person who had trouble shopping in regular stores, very tall and very striking and had a great sense of style. And she sewed her clothes. She sewed clothes for me and she sewed clothes for my doll that all matched. I don't think we would have called it art at that point um, or a passion, either one. But um, I uh, I feel like I was very influenced at a young age by my grandmother and her um, working with her hands. And as you got older, was a particular artist that you were drawn towards? 
you know, a little later, I uh, found my way to other kinds of craft, like quilts and ceramics. And uh, I was drawn to things that were very um, tactile. It wasn't until maybe when I was a little bit older that I discovered Louise Bourgeois, who uh, I just found just blew me away. And I still can picture, I can still see the image that got me at the time um, of her standing outside in this uh, sort of armor type clothing with um, that were co was covered with these breast forms, um, sort of a ancient fertility symbol on this older woman. Just found the image really moving. And on from there, I um, I had a studio that I, I, I lived in this building that Robert Kobayashi and his wife Kate Kobayashi owned. And he was an influence for sure. We all shared studios. And he introduced me to the work of Yayoi Kusama, which I, which I still love. Around those same early years in New York, early 90s, I had a friend um, working for Lorraine O'Grady and I was totally taken by another photograph, another image This of her with a dress on that was covered in gloves uh, that she had done from a kind of guerrilla performance at the New Museum. Pretty well-known image at this, that point, but at the point that I discovered it, not so, you know, probably there weren't so many artists thinking about her right then. Working in these kind of crafty, fabric-y areas were big influences early on. How would you define or describe your practice? You know, at this point, multifaceted, I guess. Um, free-ranging. Um, I've uh, studied painting as an undergrad and then sculpture as a grad student. Um, and I've moved through a lot of materials over the years and uh, I enjoy shifting materials. I've been painting more recently. My early work was often made of fabric, but sometimes also involved photographing myself or others in, in the work that I was making, clothing-based work. I've also loved working in ceramics and made a lot of work out of uh, clay, sometimes fired, sometimes, I mean, always fired, sometimes clay, sometimes painted, and then painting more recently. So a little of a lot of things, a lot of a little, a lot of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> are, are there concepts or thoughts that connect all those little things? You know, there's always been an underlying feminism in all the work, and that's probably the connecting thread. There's always been a kind of body relationship of a body in the world and the way a viewer's body comes up to the work and interacts with the work has always been crucial to the way I'm thinking about things as I'm making them. What overcomes you when you start to create? There's usually a certain feeling of resistance as I begin working, like a, almost like the work is kind of pushes you out. You, you want to get in there and you're sort of... Um, I don't know, I often feel a kind of resistance at the very beginning of a project and then a kind of deep absorption. And uh, I appreciate this idea of going, um, getting kind of lost in a work of art and then pulling back a little and coming back to oneself. Do you listen to music while you're working? You know, I always listen to music. I have Pandora, I have a pan, you know, my Pandora app going, but I, I am also very... I like that it shuffles and I don't think about it. I have Erica Badu on there right now, but you know, I'll go sort of deep into one artist on my Pandora list for a few weeks and then switch it out and have somebody else. Maybe I don't always even know exactly because of the Pandora shifting it exactly who I'm listening to, but I love I love having something going, having the beat in there and finding out about other music that I don't know about. How do you keep learning? 
You know, the student, I've, I, I love to teach. I've been, as you know, I've been involved with Skowhegan for a long time, but I've also taught for many years. Most recently, I uh, taught the grad students. At, I was a visiting artist of the grad students at SUNY Purchase. And um, for me, teaching has always been a, a big way to um, keep learning myself. Let's talk about what, what are you excited about now? I'm excited to get back to painting. I, um, I've had a few several weeks of travel for my work, which has been great. I um, opened the show at Joan LA um, in collaboration with Emily Mast and Jennifer Minitti. And that just opened a couple of weeks ago. So I'm recently back from LA, another project in London. And um, I'm just excited to get back in the studio again. And when do the titles of, of your work enter the creative process? The titles always come later. I, uh, I Every once in a while, I have a title in mind at the beginning, but usually it's a process of living with the work a while and letting it tell me where it's gone, what, I've, um, what it might be, and, uh, and titling it afterwards. I, I, I torture a bit over titles, but then I think they can be quite important. Uh, take them. I, I take them seriously. There's no. Try not to have too many untitleds in the um, <laughs> in the in the group. But usually, it's almost always later for me. What does your workspace look and feel like? My studio is in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and has been for quite a while. It's a what would be a big enough space for anyone else. I'm always. I'm kind of a space hog with my work. I like working big sculpt with sculpture. I like spreading out. So I'm always in this process of spreading out, making a really big, like taking over the space with one project and then um, kind of pulling back and making a mess, in fact, and then pulling back and cleaning it up. It's uh, it's uh, I see a rhythm to it over the years that it's like there's never enough room. And so I'm always, I, I take out all the things that I had out for the last project. So I don't look at them anymore. And I like to begin very fresh. It's something I know I've done since I was in art school. Painting versus sculpting. Is it a different passion? And do you feel differently when you're creating a sculpture versus paint? The sculptures, I mean, I'm, for lack of a better word, I'm calling the fabric pieces sculptures and the ceramic pieces sculptures. Um, and installation sculptures. I'm very involved with color in any case and texture, so that in some ways the principles behind painting for me of color and space are at work with the sculptures. I see it as one thing. I see that for other people looking at them, the categories you know, remain important. But, um, but for me, I see it as one thing. And what motivates you to, to create work? What um, inspires your creativity? I always want to see the next thing made. I have an idea and I wonder exactly how it will work. I, I'm not someone who pictures something made completely in my head ahead of time. It's something of a, you know, a collaboration between the materials, the work of art and me. Um, I always want to see what the next thing's going to look like. If you weren't an artist, a visual artist, what career choice do you think you would have made? As a young person, a very kind of social justice kid, I would have called myself somebody always volunteering. This is like a million years ago, Nader, you know, doing things in politically at the time. Um, and there were there were periods in college. I went to a small Quaker school, Earlham College, that was very social justice oriented at the time. And um and still is. And uh, 
you know, I thought I wanted to be pre-law, which seems a little hard to picture right now as a lawyer, but I think I would have done something that had a sort of social justice aspect to it or art history, perhaps. Yeah. What do you enjoy most about being a visual artist? For me, it's been this reinvention. I, I find energy going between these different, what other people think of as fields or areas and um, getting into a new territory that way. You know, for me, years ago, learning about ceramics to um, I've always done some painting, but to take the painting more seriously. Most recently, this was, the collaborative piece I did was a performance with uh, Emily Mast and um, Jennifer Minetti, where we had dancers performing in my sculptural installation, wearing clothes that Jennifer Minetti designed. Jennifer is a, the head of fashion at Pratt Institute, and Emily is a choreographer in L.A., Moving into new territory and reinvention, always. Has your practice changed much over the years? You know, in that sense of evolving, both, you know, I see big changes and then I see that it's kind of always the same to me. Yeah. And when you're creating, do you think about who your audience is? Someone who has never been that useful to think about the audience. It kind of messes me up. It, it works the best for me to think about what I want to see made and and stick as closely to that as I can. And uh, thinking about the reception or an audience is never really my best way to go. It needs to be very direct. Do you think that your audience understands your work? You know, I'm always delighted when people do understand what I'm doing. One hopes that one is understood, and that's always a nice surprise when you realize you've communicated to people. It's certainly part of it, the communication. And seeing that someone else is is following what you're doing, even if sometimes it's a bit later, you know, and there's a bit of a lag time, it's um it's rewarding. When you are in your studio, are your memories reflected in your work? I think early influences for me, as I mentioned, my grandmother was an early influence. My parents were both from little towns in the South and raised in the sort of Bible Belt, you know, we certainly early years, we were very involved with local churches. And um, I think that's in there, actually. Sometimes it's something I've been thinking about more often recently. But yeah, always certain bits seem to kind of come up from one's past that take on more importance in a certain moment. What passion do you find in creating? You know, I talked about the rediscovery. I've, um, I always feel, I mean, it feels like such a wonderful thing to be able to spend time in one studio and work with one's hands and make things and get a chance to put them out in the world and have people see them. One's, uh, as we were speaking earlier, it's been um, it's been such a rough couple of weeks in um, in the news and um, the gun violence in this country. It's been um, a harder moment to think about exactly how art fits into all that and. Um, what one's passion does for the for the world. One has one's hopes, maybe, but I've found it a um, a harder a, a bit harder in the last few weeks to find the sort of optimism that usually fuels my passion. It's a funny moment. It, it, there's a certain darkness in the air, as we mentioned earlier. What do you feel the purpose of art is? I mean, what difference can artists make? You know, tying into the other question and the sort of as one hopes one can influence thought, can can make a real difference in one's life. For me, art has been the spark of my life and a reason to get up in the morning and 
go to bed at night and um, one hopes one might spark something in someone else. Maybe right this minute, I'd downgrade my optimism just a hair and uh, and hope that one can make it, that art can make a difference. You know, you think about maybe flip it over and think the world without art would be a, a place we wouldn't want to live in. And uh, so maybe the importance comes from thinking about it that way. The importance, we know that art must be crucial because when we picture the world without it, we know that's not where we want to live. I've enjoyed our conversation. This is our last question. How would you like your work to impact the way people think? Phyllis, I was thinking that you might end somewhere like this. And I um, had been thinking about it. I listened to Eugenie Tsai's your interview with Eugenie Tsai a few weeks ago that was so great. And Eugenie had such a beautiful, especially her answers to the last few questions were so beautiful. And uh, I, I come back to sort of needing to stay with my own making and just hope that it communicates on the other end and, um, and make what I think needs making and then hope that if I do that with all the intentionality I can bring to it, that on the other end, it's communicating to someone else. Thank you so much, Beverly. This has been great. Great. Nice to talk to you, Phyllis. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.